This is The Guardian. Others and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. So I'm starting with something that has never been said on this pod before. The Lionesses have lost. Serena Wiegmann's 30-match unbeaten run has come to an end at the hands of Australia. Sam Kerr doing her West London thing yet again. But how much of a worry is that result just before the Provisional World Cup squad is announced? I'm also saying something that has been said multiple times on this pod before. The Lionesses have won a trophy. The inaugural finalissima was won by England after a penalty shootout. So much to unpick in the final international break before the World Cup kicks off. We'll also take a quick look at the weekend's FA Cup semi-finals. And that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Well, what a panel we have today. Susie Rack, it's been a pleasure to be in your company the past week or so at the internationals. How are you doing? Tired. Very, very tired. We don't get enough sleep. No, we really, really don't. I also shoved in a little trip to Burnley in between the internationals, which I'm kind of regretting. Sophie of Goals and the Ball fame, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm also very tired, but what's new? Sam Lewis, on the other hand, is loving life, enjoying sunshine and Australia wins. I mean, what stupid person said, let's get an Aussie on the pod, shall we? Oh, that might have been me. (laughs) You really did tempt fate with this, yes. No, hello. Yes, I am tired, even though I was awake at 3.45am in Sydney to live blog the game for Australian readers on the ABC. I am still absolutely buzzing. Um, I don't know whether that's the five cups of coffee that I've had to stay awake or if it's just the vibes generally. Hopefully it's both. But yes, no, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Even more so now. I mean, I I reckon that 3.45am was was definitely worth it. That's exactly where we're going to start. England versus Australia with the Lionesses' long 30-game unbeaten run coming to an end at the hands of the Matildas. Their first loss under Sarigman, Susie. So much to unpack here. Let's start with the big question. What exactly went wrong? I'm not totally sure. Everything was just a little bit stale, I want to say. I think there was a problem in that we've not really resolved the the issue of the sort of shift around in personnel after the Euros in that you've got you know, obviously a very clear identity to that Euros team with, you know, a thick starting eleven, and then the super subs coming off the bench to get you out of a sticky situation when teams bank against you and things like that, that inject some pace, that open the game up, that that allow you to solve that problem. And I don't think we've figured out a way to solve that problem with Alessia Russo and Ella Toon starting with, you know, no... Ellen White and Jill Scott and players like that around the team, that level of experience and quality at the very, very top isn't maybe as deep as we'd like it to be going into a World Cup. If they can solve that issue, then I think they'll be fine. But it's figuring out exactly who is who in this team, what their role is and how how they make that work. I mean, you know, you could say start Rachel Daly up top and still use Russo as a super sub, for example, because I don't. she just struggled to impose herself on me. But I think that's that's the main problem, is it's struggling to work out what the team looks like, what the bench looks like, and how that can impact a game when a team is, is sort of banking against them. I'm going to focus on the positions in, in a bit, but let's talk about the overall results, Sophie. Is it quite important not to catastrophize this result? You put on the WhatsApp group yesterday that actually wasn't that bothered about it. It's absolutely fine. But maybe is it the bit of the kick up the bum that England might have needed before the World Cup? I think it's a bit of both. I think in football, we tend to be quite reactionary, right? And we think about the last game that happened rather than the 30 games that happened before that. And one game doesn't decide the fate of a team going into a World Cup. It's all very preparatory at the moment. Yes, England do generally know they're starting eleven, but you were probably expecting a hiccup along the way at some point. That's just the way that football goes. 
And I'm, as an England fan, pretty happy that it happened now rather than on that first game in July when all panic breaks loose because, you know, they've lost their first game in 35 games or whatever it would be by that point and they don't know how to deal with it. So they've got, what, two months now, three months uh, to try and right the wrongs that went wrong last night. They were presented a particular problem, I think, in, in, in Sam Kerr and the Australian team who really did cut out the spaces and bank up when defending that didn't allow England's attackers any any movement going through the, the middle. And as soon as they got the ball, they were just jumped on by an Australian player, whether one of the midfielders or defenders. So there's things to work on for sure, but you want that, right? You, you want that going into a World Cup or a major tournament. Um, and they will have preparation camp ready to deal with that and sort those problems out. So definitely don't panic or be too reactionary. I'm quite chill. Um, I think I did say to you yesterday, didn't I, that I can't decide whether it's because we won the Euros and I don't really get bothered by much anymore because that happened and it was the best day of my life or whether it's just because, you know, we are in this state at the moment and things happen in football, maybe a bit of a both. Yeah, you sound like Serena Wiegmann in the press conference last night. She went very Pep Guardiola on us all, didn't she? Well, you know, sometimes you lose. No mention of Michael Jordan <laughs> within that, though. Um, I mean, we talk about being clinical, Sam, but Australia absolutely were that last night. Two goals from their two shots on target. How much confidence, bearing in mind the Scotland defeat that they had, which ended their run of seven games, um, give them ahead of the World Cup? It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I think it's really important to keep this game and particularly this window in context for the Matildas. They came into the April camp really hampered by injuries. They were losing over 500 caps worth of appearances from a number of players who were taken out by injuries from Caitlin Ford to Steph Catley to Alana Kennedy. And then even in the middle of the window, we saw some players had to leave, including Emily Van Egmond and Holly McNamara. So this is a team that really had to pivot and they had to improvise and they had to try and figure out on the fly, what do you do if you're in a World Cup situation and this happens and you've got this domino effect of, of player injuries and unavailabilities, who do you turn to for plan B? And I think that's where the biggest confidence boost comes from because if they were able to do this in these circumstances, they were able to pivot to this plan B and put on what I would argue is probably the best performance that they have had under Tony Gustafson, considering those circumstances and considering the quality of the opponent. It's a really important, I think, milestone for this side because the last two years have been a real roller coaster for the Matildas. The results have been very up and down, performances have been up and down. There was a time there where a lot of people really were starting to waver in terms of their faith in Gustafsson and what ideas he sort of had for this team. He, we couldn't really see the long-term vision. But the last sort of four to six months, we've really started to see some things start to coalesce. We've started to see more convincing, longer-term performances from the Matildas we, rather than just sort of a 15-minute chunk here or a half there. We've seen some much sort of more convincing, stronger, holistic performances against lots of different kinds of teams as well. And so coming into this sort of July tournament, which is a tournament that has so much expectation on the Matildas to do well, finally it feels like all of these pieces are falling into place. And to know that we can come up against a team like the Lionesses with all of the individual talents that they have at their disposal and the huge rut of confidence that they were on coming in on their 30-game unbeaten streak to have done this, it's pretty nice, i got to say. I have to also say, I've only just seen your Matilda scarf draped over your sofa and your Matilda shirt <laughs> yeah. hanging on the wall. It's like you're taunting us. That's that's bold. That's so Aussie, that is. Let's just rub it in your face this morning. Just be glad that I left my Matilda's beanie in the other room. Thank you for that. It's much appreciated. <laughs> I've got my England bucket hat. Oh, excellent. Put it on, Susie Rack. Put it on. <laughs> you mentioned depth earlier, Susie, and it felt as if there were small experiments across the pitch. But I was quite surprised at Rachel Daly coming in at 10 off the bench rather than either on for Alessia Russo or, or maybe trying them both up top. 
I mean, that's what the sort of immediate reaction was when she came on, was that they might switch to a 4-4-2, which I was quite surprised about because obviously we've not seen England play a 4-4-2 for a very, very long time and definitely not under Serena. So I, I thought that was an interesting move slash experiment. And yeah, to see her drop into the number 10, I felt a little bit sorry for her, particularly after she's, you know, spent so long playing at left back, right back, you name it. Um, finally gets her, her chance to be named as a forward in the squad announcement. She finally has got on the pitch as a forward in that first game off the bench and then comes on as a number 10 in this. Feels like a, a little bit of a harsh decision Um but I mean, I suppose speaks to the trust that Serena has in her as a player, but also the lack of trust that she has in maybe the other options. Um, you know, I was a little bit disappointed. If you're gonna, if you're gonna straight swap like that, why isn't Jordan Nobbs coming on? I mean, why why is she there if not to give her a test in this team before you're making your selection for the World Cup? You know, she's playing regularly at club level now. She's playing well. She's linking up well with Daly. Why aren't you doing a straight swap um, Russo for Daly? and sticking Jordan in behind her and really capitalising on that new partnership there. So I thought it was a strange decision. I'm still very much, you know, on the Serena Wiegmann bandwagon. So, like, <laughs> who am I to doubt the decisions of a manager that's just gone on a 30-game unbeaten run and has won a European Championship for the second time? But, yeah, I like, I thought that was odd and I thought that there'd be a little bit more experimentation with some of the bench players to try and find the key to sort of unlocking this very, very resilient Aussie side after they had gone ahead. Because for me in the second half, the only real energy for quite a short period of time came from Lauren James. She was the only one who looked able to wriggle, trick and sort of twist her way into areas in a way that created space around her and found space for other players and drew players towards her. And that was the only point at which I thought maybe they might be able to unlock the door and find a way through. But even those moments were brief and there didn't really seem to be much beyond that that really tested Mackenzie Arnold or the defence. Yeah, Rachel Daly said that in post-match to me. She said that, that they just weren't good enough in, in both boxes, really. And and defensively, Sophie, without knowing when Millie Bright will be back, although Serena Wiegmann did say it looked positive for her, more so than Frank Kirby, actually, which we'll mention later, should we be worried about England's defensive injuries? Because Esme Morgan started in a centre-back pairing with Leah Williamson, but I'm not entirely sure whether it actually worked. So, is it the back line where England maybe lack a bit of depth if if big players are missing? It's a weird one because we have enough players in that position. But I think the problem with having this back-to-back major tournaments is it gives you very little time to bleed new life through it, as I, I guess the new generation through. So the likes of Esme Morgan, uh, Mela Tizier as well, you know, they've had very little time to really bed themselves into this squad. And because every match matters so much in the preparation for this tournament. Probably Serena Wiegmann's been going, I actually need to look at who's starting rather than giving people those opportunities um, or as many as they would normally get in a two-year cycle going forward. It is a worry. Millie Bright is England, along with Leah Williamson, is England's best defender. We know that. We know how consistent she is for club as well, how integral she is to the, that Chelsea side's fortune. And it's the same for country. So it is a worry, but we have Alex Greenwood as well. Um, she went off injured for half of the camp, but she looked fine. She was training yesterday. So, yeah, it is obviously a worry. I was a bit surprised that uh, we didn't see Leah and Lotta Wubamoy play together yesterday because they played together quite often at club. And that relationship is there, whereas Esme, Morgan and Leah Williamson haven't played together all that often. I don't think, certainly not as far back as I, I can remember. So... I was a little bit surprised by that when there is a relationship between those two, no matter what kind of what the form of Lotta Wibbenwein has been or how many games she's played. But I, I would reckon that actually she's probably played as many as Esme Morgan this season. So that was a surprise. That was a really interesting point about the short turnarounds because between major tournaments, because I think that definitely has been a problem. But also maybe the like unbeaten run has almost been a little bit of a millstone in that respect, in that there's been a bit of a pressure to keep winning. And in a sense, like maybe after the Euros, Serena Wiegmann should have gone wildly experimental and, you know, kind of torn up the rule book a little bit and blooded a load of these players much, much earlier on 
so that when you get to this point, they're far more tested and just sort of almost sacrificed the results to a certain extent. Instead, we've sort of seen a very, very similar 11, a very, very settled team, really, players coming in that that are sort of needed, necessitated uh, changes rather than planned for ones, you know, injuries or players retiring, all those kind of things. There's a little bit of, you know, kind of testing out of bodies at the Arnold Clark Cup, but maybe not as much as we perhaps should have seen straight after the Euros with the World Cup in mind and getting minutes and not minutes in the bodies of these players, but minutes in the partnerships of these players in England shirts. Just to quickly bounce off that, it's so interesting hearing you talk about that because what the Matildas have been doing is exactly the opposite. Over the past two years since Tony's come on board, they've brought in around, I think, 60 to 70 new players into Matilda's camp. They've handed out around 20 caps, new debuts to new players. And yeah, results have plummeted because of that, because they had to. You have to start somewhere. You have to throw these players in at some point. And what has been a really interesting exercise for Gustafsson in particular is watching the way in which he has navigated the public and his messaging and his communication to the public in terms of his longer project. And he has admitted that along the line, he probably wasn't quite as clear with us about what he was trying to achieve when there were these big runs of like constant losses and big score lines that we were copying because we were throwing these players into the deep end. But now we're starting to see that all of this stuff has been part of this big picture. It's been timed to perfection, hopefully, fingers crossed. But now we're seeing this this really solid run of form from players who he gave his first caps to. Charlotte Grant, for example, who scored against England earlier this morning, she didn't have a single cap before Gustafson came on board. Kara Cooney-Cross was one of the very, very fringe, young, peripheral Matildas players when he first joined, and now she's arguably become one of the best midfielders in the entire squad. Courtney Vine come off the bench and made a huge impact. Claire Hunt at centre-back. This is only her third game for the Matildas. He's still experimenting. He's still bringing in these players when needed. So to sort of see the perspective from the England point of view and like sort of compared to what Australia has been doing over the same period of time is really interesting in that juxtaposition. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's a European problem, to be honest, as well, because I haven't analysed every single European team with a fine tooth comb, but I'm pretty sure there's been not much change for the European teams since the Euros last summer. They've brought in a few new new players but they've all had this massive problem with this cycle, whereas it never really normally happens like this. But because of the pandemic, um, these back-to-back tournaments for the European teams have made it so. I think what you were saying, Susie, I understand that. But for me, it's just they came out of the Euros, they still had to qualify for the World Cup. So they had to get that job done. That was still weighing over their heads. And then the level of opposition that the FA wanted to get in. So getting in the likes of America, they were never going to waste that game at Wembley, whatever you wanted them to do. You know, they needed to put in a performance. They needed to set their stall out. It's those kind of opposition that they really wanted to get and they were never going to use them as throwaway games, I think, um, in this short space of time. I'll tell you what, Sam, we've got 15 minutes into the pod and I've not let you wax lyrical about Sam Kerr yet, which is quite astounding. (laughs) Obviously, involved in both goals last night, scored one, assisted the other, and and England just couldn't handle her at all. Can it be overstated how important she is for Australia? No, she's critical. She's critical to the Matildas. And we've known that for a, a while, but I think... What has been interesting in this window is that for one of the first times, we've actually seen how the Matildas play when she's not on the field, and that was against Scotland. And it's still a very big question mark, I think, for Australia heading into the Women's World Cup. What is plan B if Sam Kerr is not available? It was a question that Gustafsson was asked after the Scotland game because he has been trying to find and build depth in this team in every single position possible. So over the last two years, he's found all of these different kinds of profiles of striker to see 
who could effectively replace Sam if she's if she's injured or if she's unavailable for some other reason. Um, he's tried sort of the the traditional big and tall number nine. He's tried the zippy getting behind wingers sort of striker. He's tried a Caitlin Ford there. He's tried a Kaya Simon there. He's tried lots of different kinds of players who can be there, but none of them do what Sam Kerr can do. She does everything, particularly, and he talks about this all the time and he praises her for it all the time, what she does off the ball. She leads Australia's press. She brings players into the game around her. She lures defenders away from channels in order to create space. She closes down. She provides combinations. She does so much for the team. Uh, The fact that she can also score extraordinary goals so regularly and is now the all-time leading goal scorer in Australian football history and still with arguably another World Cup cycle to go in her legs it's, she's she's miraculous. She's a generational player, um, which is both a, a very special thing for us, but it's also a very scary thing for us because you, if you become too reliant on a player like that, and I feel like perhaps England are experiencing something a little bit similar at the moment, you need to try and figure out what plan B is if that player, for some reason, touching every single piece of wood in my house becomes unavailable for a critical game. That's something that we still haven't figured out. Um, and this game against England showed that she is absolutely instrumental, not just to getting results, but to the, the way that the Matildas play generally. She dictates so much. She leads by example. She she motivates the side in a way that I don't think many other players in a senior position really can so, yeah, it's going to be really interesting how all of this sort of unfolds uh, at the Women's World Cup. It would be really great if we did have a plan B, but, you know, ultimately this is a tournament where Sam Kerr is going to be the face. Uh, this is her tournament. This is her home tournament in front of her home fans and her family. This is a tournament that she desperately, desperately, desperately wants to win. So she's going to drag herself through every blade of grass, even if it means that she collapses with exhaustion as far as she can get, because this is her moment. She's in the peak of the form of her life and everyone is going to be watching her to see what she does next. She is quite incredible, Susie, isn't she? And and I do feel as if England's not version of Sam Kerr, because there is no version of Sam Kerr, but the player that is so crucial to the way England play and dictates everything is Kira Walsh and I feel as if she's been stifled by both Brazil and Australia and when she is taken out of the game essentially England aren't quite the same so they need a plan B. A hundred percent I think the teams have really worked out how to play against England's midfield and you know the difference between the starting 11 of late and the Euros is that we've got Elatoon starting and no Frank Kirby, who's obviously injured. And I think that actually is quite a big blow and quite a big change. Um, you know, Elatoon's a phenomenal player, obviously scored against Brazil, but she doesn't look totally comfortable over 90 minutes in that position alongside Georgia Stanway and Kira Walsh and doesn't quite have the level of creativity of, of Frank Kirby. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. I also, when I was watching the game last night and, you know, with the absence of Millie Bright, with the injuries to Alex Greenwood, obviously, you know, you can't really move Leah Williamson, but she is, you know, going to be likely playing in the middle for Arsenal for the remainder of the season with the injury to Kim Little. And you sort of feel like maybe her slotting in alongside Kira Walsh, who she's played with for a very, very long time, could be an answer to that. The problem is, is... A centre back uh, partnership without Leah Williamson looks a hell of a lot weaker. So there's that to deal with too. There's a lot of questions and a lot of potential answers, and we haven't necessarily really seen what those answers are yet. I mean, I think I I turned to Soph at one point, and like she was sat next to me at the game last night, and I was like, I think Sam Kerr is the type of player who she could have a double ACL injury ahead of the world cup and would like defy science and drag herself onto that pitch and still play every single game and still finish the tournament top scorer uh, and win it like she feels slightly indestructible and is 
very, very quickly becoming the bane of my existence <laughs> because obviously I'm a massive Arsenal fan, as we're all very aware. And, you know, incredible record against Arsenal. Um, powers Chelsea to the league time and time again. Um, I was at the Team GB Australia Olympics game uh, where she punctured England's uh, England's tour at England Team GB's tournament. That was basically England, though, wasn't it? <laughs> England with a little bit of Scotland and Wales thrown in, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, with a player each um, and a pretty key players. I mean, I think if we could take, um, you know, the likes of Caroline Weir to the World Cup with us, we definitely would be. But yeah, I, I like really kind of killed that dream there and in emphatic style, despite Ellen White scoring a hat trick. And yeah, just you look at that potential quarterfinal matchup between England and Australia. I think it's last 16. Oh, last 16. Oh, God, it's even earlier. Oh, no. Yeah, that worries me because a, a last 16 exit uh, for England would not not be a good thing. But Sam Kerr always scores. She's inevitable. She does. And I wonder whether we're, we're all kind of keeping our fingers crossed, which again is not appealing opposition at the last 16, that maybe Australia could top the group and we'd get Canada, who are in a little bit of flux perhaps at the moment, despite being Olympic gold medalists. But let's quickly look at the squad going forward, Sophie, because th- that was essentially the last game before Serena Wiegmann picks her provisional squad. <sighs> Who do you want to see picked? And I think it's the fringe players that we're focused on more here. She's only got 23 to select, which is three less than what she had in the Euros when it was still that extended 26. Who has to be on the plane, do you think? So for me, I take Fran Kirby, even if she is a doubt for the the group stages. I think she is the kind of player... Samantha calls Sam Kerr, uh, generational just said. Fran Kirby is a generational player. She sees the pictures on the pitch different to every other player, bar maybe Lauren James at the moment, but Lauren James is still young and growing and developing into that role. So I would risk everything to take her as one of those those players. Um, and if you don't use her, you don't use her, but at least you have the option of, of her going. I would still take Jordan Nobbs, even though I don't think Serena seems to rate her that much I just think she's playing well for Villa she finds the spaces she can play in different roles around that midfield area so she can play in the number 10 but she can also play in the number six and the number eight Um, so she can do a job anywhere in that midfield and that gives you the kind of the versatility you need if you need to change things up a little bit so I would definitely take her I just think she gives you more attacking options Uh, defensively you know Lotta Wibamoy she doesn't get a lot of game time But she's done a major tournament before and that, I think, stands her in good stead compared to someone like maybe Esme Morgan who who hasn't done a major tournament before. So she hasn't got that experience under her belt. She's also, when she does play for clubs, she plays pretty well. So um, I don't think she's completely looked at as a a proper uh, contender for a a centre-back role. And Jess Carter, I think, has done herself no no harm these last two games. She's done really well at that left-back role where... Um, she's slotted in perfectly and she hasn't had a lot of game time for England. Um, so I'd take her too. I know we haven't seen her at all this year under Serena, but I would take Bethany England. Like you look at the forward line compared to the Euros and you're, you're, you know, we've, we've not had Paris in the camp of late. There's no Beth Mead. We've no Ellen White. Beth was at the Euros as a fringe player, but she's now playing week in, week out and is playing well, put some decent players around her. And, you know, she can do a decent job for England. And I think Russo got a lot of chances and wasn't always able to find the space or the the angle or the the hole to squeeze the ball through. But a player like Beth England with the level of experience she's got, I would I would still take. Yeah, interesting. Just finally, Sam, in terms of Australia's chances, obviously England could meet you in the last 16, but how do you rate your chances overall? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the golden question uh, in Australian football at the moment. How, just how far can this Matilda's side go? And it's a question that has had different answers over the past two years. <laughs> I think off the back of the last six months, uh, people are more confident than ever that Australia can go to at least the quarterfinal to match their their quarterfinal run. And 
then it's it's sort of a big question mark. It depends on the permutations of groups and and who you sort of run into at certain points and whether there are any key injuries that happen to result in the downfall of of the team. But I mean, if we get to the semifinals, I think that would be uh, and and we play the kind of football that we've been able to play for the last couple of months. I think that would be the ultimate. That would sort of be the peak considering where this team has started from and also considering the other nations who we would potentially have to come up against at that pointy end of the tournament. So I would love, love, love to get them to the semifinal and to see them there. It would be historic for an Australian senior team to get to that point of a World Cup and to do it after everything that they have been through and after everything that Australian football in particular has been through, which I promise you is a whole other podcast episode, it would be it would be amazing. It would be really amazing. So a quarterfinal, I think, would be sort of the, 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 the average expectation. A semifinal would be peak. Right, we will have you on that episode because me and Susie Rack have have plans for <laughs> for outing the the appalling stuff that goes on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you won't have seen this, uh, anyone listening, but Susie Rack has literally in a in a very um, oh god, what's the guy from um, the Mr. Simpsons? Burns. Mr. Ominous. Burns. Thank yes. you very much put her fingers together in a in a menacing way right right that's it for part one in part two we'll focus on some of the other results over the international break Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Right, time to move on to some other results, uh, touching on Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But first, let's take a look back at England's first game. Uh, Feels like forever ago now. The Finalissima won the inaugural Finalissima. It finished after... 90 minutes, England won, Brazil won, but England won it 4-2 on penalties. A sold-out Wembley, yet another trophy to Serena Wiegmann's cabinet. She's barely been in charge 18 months and uh, won Euros, two Arnold Clark Cups and now the Finalissima. It's quite incredible. Ella Toon opened the scoring for England and Brazil's Andressa Alves jumped on a spill from Mary Earps to grab the very late equaliser and then force penalties. The opening England goal, Susie, I don't feel, having watched them against Australia last night, we saw a very different England than what that opening goal was. It was so fabulously worked, a team goal before Ella Toon then put it into the back of the net. That's the vintage England I like to see. Oh yeah, it's like 18 passes in the run up to that goal. It was superb. It was just such a game of two halves, wasn't it? Because we saw the best of England in in the first half and and the worst in the second. Um, Although perhaps that speaks more to the performance of Brazil and their turnaround at half-time. But um, staggeringly good in the first half. Um, You know, that was the team playing the football that we've sort of got a little bit used to under Serena. So at these games, as a reporter, when it's a late kickoff, you're having to write it as the game is going on, right? And you have to file a bunch of copy at half time. Like you're basically at that point saying this is England's to lose, you know, absolutely superb. Um, so the first half copy goes off into the into the ether to the editors, and then all of a sudden it switches and the narrative that you've you've played out in in a big chunk of of your words has uh, has has not quite ended up that way and you have to hastily rewrite afterwards to sort of redress the balance. But that's that sort of explains the game for me because it was so, so comprehensive and dominant in the first half and then such a, a sort of stuttered performance in the second, really unable to cope with the increased intensity from Brazil. I think it was interesting that after the Australia game, Serena said that, you know, there's been warnings that that things aren't always going to go to plan against Brazil, against the Czech Republic, you know, obviously, you know, the Spain game, the Euros, the the final even. And to a certain extent, they've scraped over those hurdles. And that's sort of all that matters that you get over, right? It doesn't really matter the manner in which you you get over. It's about finding a way to get over. Well, eventually you're going to knock your kneecap out or do some serious damage though, aren't you? (laughs) Exactly that, and and that's what what I think happened against Australia a little bit is you know we sort of finally hit that speed bump a little a little too hard. 
but yeah, the warning signs were there against Brazil for the Australia game um, in that second half. But it's positive that the first half performance showed that the personnel around the team, the starting eleven, can produce beautiful, flowing, attacking, nice football. They can also produce a moment in terms of Chloe Kelly, Sophie as well. Big trophy winning moment at Wembley. It's like her stage, isn't it? She's such a big game player. And, you know, I know they'll have been disappointed conceding such a sloppy goal in injury time. But to have the experience of a high pressure penalty shootout in essentially a friendly ahead of a World Cup is a pretty decent experience. It's priceless. I think Wembley is Chloe Kelly's stage for sure. Um, I can't remember the last time England had a penalty shootout. Maybe it was the 2011 World Cup. So I certainly not for a long time have they had to do that in, in sort of competitive circumstances. So the fact that they had to stand up and do it at Wembley and get that under their belt ahead of another major tournament where they might very realistically have to go and do that um, is absolutely key. I have to say I still haven't seen a single penalty. I hate penalties. I can't stand them. I was sat next to Susie at that game. I had my head on the desk and every time someone cheers... I'd write write the tweets and then have my head on the desk again because I just cannot I just cannot <laughs> I deal that. with the, the absolute trauma of penalties. Um, but yeah, just glad England England got through. And um, I think for me, one thing I would say, and it's not really an excuse at all. It's not meant as an excuse, but these players look really tired. And I would say that for a lot of European players. And you will look around the results that happened last night and across this international break. And there are some weird ones that you would not expect to happen. And I think that's, that is down to the fact that these European players are absolutely knackered. Like they're, they're just running on, on steam at the moment and they need to get to the end. They'll have one eye on their clubs. So they'll need to get to the end of the season, win what they can with their clubs. And then I think they can have a bit of a break um, before they have to go again. And I think that might see some refreshed, re-energised legs ahead of, ahead of the summer because it has been a long old slog this season. I know we certainly feel it as journalists, so I can only imagine uh, what the players are feeling right now after a whole summer of football, about two weeks off for some of them, and then coming straight back into it. Yeah, Scotland aren't that tired, though. 1-0 win over Australia. Nicola Doherty scoring just her second goal for her country, and it was an absolute beaut as well, looping it in from long range. Uh, Scotland had some other good chances as well. Australia hit the bar a couple of times, but it was a slightly weaker side, Sam. You know, no Sam Kerr on the bench, and then, of course, Caitlin Ford and, and Steph Catley both injured. What did you make of of this result and performance? Yeah, look, I I think it was it was a kind of a weird game because the Matildas had created enough chances, particularly in the second half, I think, for the result to have swung wildly in their favour. As you mentioned just then, they hit the crossbar twice um, and there were two or three really, really excellent saves from Scotland's goalkeeper, uh, one-on-ones with Mary Fowler and with Larissa Crummer, who was the number nine for uh, the first hour of that game. Had those gone in, had a goal been a little bit bigger than what it was, you know, it would have been a totally different conversation. But um, the goal that they scored ultimately was ridiculous. It was unsavable for any goalkeeper. It just looped in at this absolutely bizarre mathematical angle. I don't even know how it works. Uh, it was it was incredible up until that point and really past that point as well. Mackenzie Arnold had been really, really good in goal and she, I think, has emerged from this window, particularly off the back of the Cup of Nations in February, where she won player of the tournament as the number one goalkeeper now for the Matildas, which is actually really lovely because she's always sort of been hovering around number two or three. There's always been a couple of people ahead of her in the pecking order, including Lydia Williams, who's now sort of fallen down all the way down the, the ladder uh, as a result of not really getting much game time uh, in Clubland. Um, but Arnold has really taken this opportunity uh, with both hands or both gloves. Uh, and yeah, she's absolutely shining. So, uh, you know, there are a couple of good lessons to learn from that Scotland game, similar perhaps to the way that England has learned some lessons from the Matildas uh, game this morning. I think the the gals came off the back of that loss to Scotland 
realizing that there were some things that they did need to tighten up. Um, it's obviously very difficult to keep Caroline Weir quiet for long, but I think considering the players that we had available to us, we did a pretty decent job at trying to snuffle them out and, and suffocate them as much as we could. The real problem was going forward. The real problem was creating chances. What do you do when you don't have someone like Sam Kerr, who is basically sometimes having to pull the whole team along on her own shoulders? Um, Larissa Crummer is absolutely not the substitute for a Sam Kerr in that sense. Uh, she looked half a beat slower than everything around her. Uh, she really struggled to connect with players she sort of made the wrong decisions at crucial moments as well. The deadliest players that we had going forward were our two wingers of Courtney Vine and, and Hayley Rasso. And Rasso as well comes into Matilda's camp really with a lot of points to prove. She's not playing very much at Manchester City and this is really the only opportunity she gets to have really more than an hour of game time. So she's been fantastic for Australia as well in the last couple of camps. So, yeah, so I think overall, despite the result, you know, Gustafson came off the off the back of it and, and spoke to media afterwards and was sort of philosophical about it. He was like, yeah, like when you sort of look at the numbers, when you look at the balance of play, you know, sometimes that's just football. Sometimes the ball just doesn't want to go in its home and you got to deal with that, you know. But I think it's it's a really important test because we are preparing now, our eyes are turned to the Republic of Ireland, who is our opening game in the group stage of the Women's World Cup. It's going to be an absolutely massive moment for the Matildas. It's had to move stadiums because of the demand for tickets. It's moved to a stadium that's twice as big as what it used to be. And it's almost entirely sold out as well after this new sales window opened recently for the 100 Days to Go uh, milestone event. So it's a really high-pressure scenario for the Matildas. And considering the last time they met the Republic of Ireland, they lost. There's a lot of expectation, I think, riding on this game. So because there, there are similarities between the way that Ireland and Scotland tend to play, I think it was a really good test for the Matildas to be able to figure out some of the problems that they've needed to figure out in the next couple of months before July. Well, they'll be heartened to see the results that Republic of Ireland had against USA. Obviously, Ireland heading to their first Women's World Cup and they had a double header against the current world champions. The first game saw them lose 2-0. Emily Fox opening the scoring and Lindsay Horan converting a penalty in the 80th minute. And then uh, the Americans won the second game uh, by a goal to nil, just a goal from Alana Cook. Ireland had about the same amount of chances as, as USA in that one. I mean, they, they lost both games, Susie, but definitely positives to take from their performances. 100%. If I was Australia, I'd actually be not totally heartened um, by yep. the uh, <laughs> the results. That with I the was USA being because... nice. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like the like really, really strong performances. And I just find it hard to ever write off the Republic of Ireland. Um, they've got so many battling players within that team that work so hard together as a unit. Um, that they cause even the best teams real, real problems. You know, they to equate them to a WSL team, they're almost like the Reading, <laughs> right, of the Women's Super League, where they're this team that struggles with consistency, sometimes erratic results, but has the ability to pull off something quite impressive against um, the biggest and best. So, yeah, like for an opening game of the World Cup, Australia, Republic of Ireland, like, that's a really, really tasty game because they would delight in causing an upset. Um, and there's a, you know, obviously a huge uh, number of um, Irish people in Australia as well that are going to be drawn to that game um, and uh, the run of the team. And I, I, I could see an upset. I could. I do think people sleep on Ireland a little bit um, because of the style of play that they play. They are tough, they are gritty, they do the defensive work and all of those sort of ugly jobs so, so well and maybe aren't so potent in their attack at, at times. Um, but they showed plenty of glimpses of it last this last night, this morning. I was up watching that game, so I um, can't remember what time it was. But yeah, it's it was they, they've definitely shown enough in those last two games. And I swear I've not been paid to say this because I'm married to an Irish, but, you know, that Irish spirit is something something else. They have this sort of determination to prove everyone wrong. And actually, when they're the underdogs, that's when they're the most dangerous because when their backs are up against the wall, they come out fighting. And I know from talking to a lot of those players um, who are going to the or hopefully to go to the World Cup, that game in Sydney is the one that they're looking at and going, 
we're going to be up for that challenge and giving every single ounce of energy. And uh, Australia, you better beware, beware of that. I know you have Sam Kerr, but um, they will have everything in their, do everything in their power to, to try and nullify that threat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a quick one, Susie, on Mel Swanson. Serious knee injury for her during the game likely means she's going to miss the World Cup this summer. Devastating, of course. But how, how much of a loss is that to the USA? A big loss. Um, you, you're just sort of praying now, right, every time a player goes down in the run-up to this tournament that it's not another big player go- or any player going out. Like That's unfair to say a big player going out. Any player having their World Cup dream ended so soon before the tournament, particularly with knee injuries. There's already so many big players missing from this competition. And it's it's undermining the competition a little bit to a certain extent when you've got, you know, so many players ruled out through not a preventable injury, but an injury that needs more research and could have the risks of it massively reduced, potentially, um, if the money and the resources put into to stopping it. So hopefully it's not an ACL. Hopefully it's not an injury that keeps her out for a real significant chunk of time. But yeah, the US are a team in, I would argue, still a team in transition, still trying to grapple with um, how the more the more aging players to not be very nice <laughs> um, of you know Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan who has been in electric form at club level and for country in the last year you know that sort of senior senior level of player the Becky Salbrands you know those kind of players how they fit in alongside this newer generation and how this newer generation sort of step into into their shoes and so yeah any loss to to a player who has been performing who is newish to the team and has been performing at that level is a big blow one more match to wrap up in terms of the home nations wales four northern ireland one four different goal scorers for wales jess fishlock angarad james hannah kane and, and rachel Rowe. northern ireland still in a bit of flux at the minute susie uh caretaker manager andy waterworth in charge after kenny shields left in january what what can we take away from from this game they only had the one didn't they northern ireland in this in this international break yeah i mean not a huge amount obviously there's nothing at stake they're in a bit of flux um high turnover they've been outperforming to a certain extent in having you know got to the euros and it's a little bit of a come down from that. Um, and they're sort of having to go back to the drawing board in, in quite a significant way. So yeah, not not the best result, but also, you know, kind of not, not the end of the world either to a certain extent. Can I just add how disappointing it is of the way that the Northern Ireland team have not had kind of the resources put behind them? You kind of feel when they qualify for their first major tournament, right? That's the moment where the federation goes, this is your time and... Yes, they're not going to get through the group at their first major tournament. That was inevitable. But this is the moment that we push on and we um, we give you the resource and the, or, like start to build around this momentous moment and build the game in the direction. And it just feels like it's just completely gone backwards. They got knocked out of the tournament. They've not really played. I think they played Italy last year, but they've not really played a, a game that much. And it's just so disappointing. And you heard, I think it was Marissa Callahan's um, call after the, the when they got knocked out of the Euros last summer. And she said, we need the resources. And what have the Federation done? They've literally just not given them the resources. And it's just the most aggravating thing. And that would be for me, with the new teams going to the World Cup, one to keep an eye on is that every single one of those new teams builds on at least reaching the World Cup. That's what you want to see. And using that moment to change the course of the game in their country rather than using it as sort of kind of the pinnacle, which Northern Ireland seemed to have done and then let it fall away because it's just it's so sad for the players that were involved and the players coming through that they don't really have the the right things around them to enable them to do their jobs. Absolutely. Don't worry. Susie Burns is on the case. They get outed every single time. Right. Quick preview of the FA Cup semi-finals. Um, Sam, I'm going to ask you how much you actually get to to watch English football uh, over there, bearing in mind the, the, the time zones. But we've got two big FA Cup semi-finals to go through. Um, who wants to take Manchester United against Brighton Saturday's game? Definitely not me. 
I look at because of like again because of time zones. Like this is the thing that I'm partly most looking forward to about the Women's World Cup is how many of you are going to have to know deep into your bones what it's like to be an Australian fan of European football. Your sleep cycles, <laughs> your bodies, you have no idea what you're up to. You you are going to suffer long after the tournament is over. Things are going to break. Your your body's not going to know what's going on. Um, no, but look, yeah, the FA Cup final, uh, semi-finals rather, are going to be really exciting, as are the the Champions League next stages as well. We've got a, a couple of Aussies who are still in and around and kicking it. A little bit of concern, I think, about some of our players coming off the back of this window. You mentioned earlier Sam Kerr's got potentially a little bit of a knee thing, even though she's like, no, I'm fine. She always says that and then, you know, hopefully it doesn't spiral into something else. Steph Catley is still dealing with her injury as well. Caitlin Ford's hamstring is still potentially a little bit of a worry. Not quite sure what's going to happen with them. But yeah, like I'm I'm a Liverpool person, but I, you know, when it comes to the women's game, I have Aussies everywhere. So I'm like, well, I just want everyone to have fun and not get hurt. So that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Right, Susie, Manchester United's Brighton, bearing in mind this is top of the table versus bottom of the table. I know it's a cup game, but is it going to go to form? I mean, I think the result is pretty much written already, really, isn't it? I mean, Man United have been pretty ruthless uh, this season and I can't see Brighton putting up much, um, much of a test for them. You know, obviously, Alessia Russo, Ella Toon, some of the other international players are coming back into the fold for Man United after the tough defeat to Australia um, when you're looking at the England players, uh, May Leticia as well. So, you know, in that sense, they're a bit frustrated, but they've also sort of got a little bit of a point to prove too um, and will want to get over that pretty fast and put it behind them. So if you're a Brighton fan, you're pretty worried, I would say, about this fixture and Man United are, you know, almost without a ball having been kicked one foot into a first ever FA Cup final. Aston Villa have a point to prove as well after that 3-0 defeat to Chelsea. Sophie and they face them again, but in the in the semis and Carla Ward's going to really want to to upturn the, the odds on this one. I think we'll see a bit of a different game as well. Um, I think they were pretty lacklustre in that league game a couple of weeks back. They had to deal with injuries at, at right back. So I think Lucy Staniforth was in that right back role, which is not where she is best utilised. So I know Evie Rabjohn has been playing for the under-19s this week, so that that's good as a backup to Sarah Mailing if she's not fit. So hopefully that restores some sort of balance to the team. Uh, and Jordan Nobbs has not played a minute for England, so I, I, I guess she'll be fresh as well uh, coming into that. Aston Villa, for Aston Villa, this game is huge because they pretty much cemented fifth place in the league and that's their kind of limit at the moment, I think, or their their, their goal for the season. But to reach their first ever FA Cup final would be absolutely insane for the club and for Carla Ward and everything that she's been doing this season, all of the hard work and the praise that she's got, you know, to to reach that final for that club and the fans would just show the rewards for the progress that they have made over the last 18 to 24 months. Sam will be pleased to know that Sam Kerr said there's no way she's not playing that game, essentially, post, uh, post-match <laughs> twice. So I think when she says she's fine, she probably is, because she, I mean, unless, like I say, she defies science, which <laughs> she probably does on a daily basis. <laughs> if she gets injured in the WSL, I am coming over there and I am burning England to the ground. I'm telling you that now, okay? <laughs> Oh my god! Literally, Sam, I was about to say to you that like, I hate losing to the Aussies. Right? I'm one of I'm one of those people. It really gets under my skin. However, you've been so lovely, and then you ended it like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I retract it, and I'm back hating the Aussies. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and no doubt we will talk to you uh, over the World Cup. Susie Rack, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Oh, I'm so tired. Maybe not so much this morning. <laughs> Go back to bed. So loving the new hat. Thank you. Great to be on again. See you later. We'll be back next week to analyse those FA Cup semi-finals. So we see you then. Uh, just a reminder as well, you can now email us on womensfootballweekly at theguardian.com. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly this week is produced by Lucy Oliver and Becky Taylor-Gill. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Sal Ahmad.
This is The Guardian.